It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to everyone's favourite 30 minute bit of audio. It is Last Week in Brexit. As always, I am joined by Christian Spence. Hello there. And Alex Davis. Hiya. Now, before we get into today's programme, um, I just want to thank you all for your iTunes reviews. You've been leaving them on iTunes. We've got a couple this week. If you leave one which is particularly witty or funny and has five stars, I'll almost certainly read it out. If you want to get involved in the conversation, you can find me on Twitter, at Jay Beardmore. Uh, where are you guys? Just uh, let everyone know. Uh, you can get me at GMCC underscore Christian. And I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. Brilliant. Okay, uh, let's dive into this. I think probably the best place to start with is a decision made by the ECJ. Um, who would want to talk? Who wants to talk about this first? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll kick off. So there's been. It's not had a lot of press actually. There's been a big case rumbling its way through uh, through the European Court of Justice, which is basically about who within the EU needs to sign off any trade deals that they do. This was important a little while ago. Um, you may well all remember when we were signing or when the EU was trying to ratify that trade deal with Canada, the CETA agreement, mm. um, that it nearly fell over at the very last stage because the, the, the mighty government uh, of Wallonia, part of Belgium, um, didn't like an aspect of it. And uh, under the old system, essentially, every single parliament in the EU, not just the 28 member states, but if there are regional parliaments, uh, then each of those has a veto over an entire trade deal. Uh, so the big worry, of course, was that an example of Wallonia holding up Canada was being touted as this is how hard it's going to be for the UK to get a trade deal because if you've not got the 37 parliaments, I think, uh, in complete unanimity, it's going to be impossible. Well, the big news yesterday, the ECJ ruled, actually to everyone's surprise, that the EU has almost complete competence uh, in signing trade deals. So there are only uh, two small areas where they would have to ask uh, specifically uh, national parliaments if they, uh, if they want their approval. But broadly, it's up to the EU. Um, so, you know, this is a big, a big, big decision. So the point is now, you know, the press is now trying to work out, all the analysts are trying to understand what this means. But broadly, it should be that actually striking a deal between the UK and the EU should be a bit easier than we thought it might have been about 24 hours ago. Yeah, because one of the... 
Well, I guess it's a dual point, isn't it? It's a Remain point and a Brexiteer point. So the Brexiteers would say, well, the fact that the, e- that the EU takes X amount of years to sign a trade deal because it has to be ratified by everyone is a reason to leave. And meanwhile, the, Brexit- uh, the Remainers would say the fact that it has to be signed by everyone means that we shouldn't leave because we can't get a trade deal. So it, it's interesting. It certainly changes the landscape a bit. Yeah, it does. I mean, it, it kind of goes both ways, doesn't it? Because it, it kind of makes things a little bit easier for us on the Brexit side of things, but also it kind of um, goes against one of the main arguments the Brexiteers would have put forward that the EU struggles to come to a consensus, and that's why maybe it takes so long with, with the trade deals. Um, I mean, Christian mentioned CETA and the issues that they had with Wallonia, but um, the EU is kind of notoriously slow at doing trade deals, but I'm not necessarily sure if that's because of the, the parliamentary issue. Um, it. it I, mean, I, I, I think the problem with the parliamentary issue, the sheer number of people that you need to try and unite, um, the difference is opinion as well, because it's, again, we, we still, it's still so easy to talk about the EU as a single body. You know, mm-hmm. been, you know, a good parallel is just looking at UK legislation and you know, some of the challenges of you know, two major parties pulling in some ways. The, the ability for even minor parties, look at UKIP here, one MP, that's all they ever got, but look at what they've managed to do in terms of changing government agenda. Uh, yeah. In the past five or ten years, the role of SNP currently, um, you know, it's hard at our level. So, of course, actually multiply that out across twenty-eight states and the regional parliaments, and I think it's always been hard, really, for the EU to um, to square all of those circles. But I think the, the other big one, of course, is the EU. Probably, unlike any other big trade blocks, places much more emphasis on kind of environmental, social, and regulatory mm-hmm. responsibilities than many other. You know, it's. The you know we have one of the one of the best regulated, tightest regulated. That's good or bad depending on your point of view. Um, markets within the EU and the single market regulations, and the EU is is really keen in all of its trade deals to get as much of that in, yeah, um, as possible. And I think that's often one of the things that slows them down. Yeah. So so why did Wallonia try and veto the CETA deal? Do we- I generally can't remember. Uh, um, I think I remember actually. I- it's something to do with competition law. I'm absolutely certain it was, actually. Yeah, because there was stuff in the CETA, wasn't there, about whether when you've got uh, public services that can go out to private sector and whether overseas investors can challenge. It was some sort of... I mean, yeah. Yeah, in one way, it's tiny, in another quite chunky yeah. uh, chunky way um, in there. But it, 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 it's a great example of how just you know one small party, one small uh, parliament on one clause mm-hmm. um, can very easily disrupt can, you know, eight or ten years' worth of work. Yeah, and I think Belgium's famously got what, 12 miniature parliaments or 11 parliaments? Yeah, really, really complex system. Um, it, I mean, it was for, I mean, at some point in the last five or six years, it went about 15 months without a government at all because, uh, you know, as, as is common in the European states, what uh, nice idea. it's coalitions. And uh, Well, I mean, <laughs> the, the interesting point, of course, is actually its economy grew faster during that 15 months <laughs> than it did either <laughs> side, so that might be a lesson for us all there. Yes, exactly. Uh, do you think there's going to be any unintended consequences with the E? EU able to negotiate its own deals um, because you can you can see this upsetting people if they just go ahead and start negotiating deals. Possibly, I mean, there's still going to have to be some level of consensus. You know, whatever goes through the EU will have to go through the European Council and the ministers. So all you know, all the states are still represented. Um, but I mean, even it, it, it may you almost wonder how it, how the EU might might play this in the sense of it's always been able to use objections from member states as reasons for not doing things. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's also perhaps taken a little bit of the excuse side away from, uh, from the European Commission centrally. Yeah. You know, actually, you have the competence to do this. Um, you don't necessarily need to go away and consult parliaments. Um, uh, but of see. course, what's, but the thing is, what's legally required and what still needs to be done to win over favour 
you know, you might not have to consult them and actually get votes from them, but fundamentally, you're still going to have to have them on side. Yeah, so we probably might not expect a, a sudden new flurry of enormous EU trade deals as a, <laughs> as a result of this. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting, and I'm sure that that, that will rumble on. Um, YouGov released a poll. Apparently, we're not just Remainers and Leavers anymore. No, we are. There's a new group that's emerged called Relievers, which wow. is probably about as badly named as Brexit is. Um, so, so essentially, so YouGov, of course, you know, one of the, one of the country's big uh, opinion poll um, uh, opinion poll companies. They've been doing this kind of snapshot of uh, of Britain and trying to understand where people stand. Of course, we know, you know, fifty two percent of the country voted to leave, forty eight percent to remain. The, if you go back and ask, as, as, as YouGov and Comres and other people have been doing for a long time, do you think that the, the public's decision was a good one or bad one? The country's pretty much exactly split 50-50 uh, on that. But actually, if you start to draw on now what people want, um, we're not, as you said, we're not just leavers and remainers. We've got these relievers. So these are the people who voted to remain. Their ideal position would be that the UK stays within the EU. But actually, given the landscape, given where we are now, they appear to be saying, actually, the most important thing is we get a good deal out of, out of Brexit and that you know, Brexit happens. So, you know, it's, I think, the big one. The challenge here, I think, particularly for those people who say, actually, we shouldn't leave at all. We, you know, and this is a, you know, a challenging position for, for, I mean, particularly, I guess, for Labour and Labour because they're kind of split. Uh, you know, the, the difference in opinion between the parliamentary party and their membership is, is quite clear. Lib Dems are taking a much more... Um, pro-remain position uh, is that actually it looks like the the share of the country that really want the whole thing reversed if it was possible is only about one in five. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, one of the things we've I think we talked about this in previous podcasts. One of the things that we talk about here a lot at the chamber when we're talking about members' opinion to government is constantly actually pragmatism. It's yeah. pragmatism. It's people actually will adjust to the landscape. Um, you know, we know a majority of our members would have preferred to stay in, but actually, we don't hear anything about staying in, particularly mm. for membership. Now, it's a case of the political cards are where they are. We now plough on and make the best of it. Um, and actually, it looks like you know the country as a whole probably falls into the same group. Do you know what the question was or how it was framed when people were asked? I don't. I'd be interested. Not exactly. I've only seen the results itself and not the uh, not the methodology. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, I guess. I think we're going to leave the kind of analysis of the manifestos till till next week until yeah. we've got all three. Um, but we've already seen, um, obviously, what Labour's kind of general policy is on Brexit and that the Lib Dems have put a, a referendum on the final deal in their manifesto. Um, and, and so the the YouGov the poll would point to the fact that even if that referendum were to be held, that more people would rather go ahead with it. But it, I guess it depends upon how the question was framed. Yeah, I'll, well, I'll, I've, I've got it here now, thanks to the wonders of the internet. Um, so, uh, so the YouGov polled, thinking about the result of the EU referendum, which of the following best reflects your view? So voted to leave in the EU referendum and still want the EU, UK to leave. Uh, that's 45% of the country. Uh, voted to remain but think the government now has a duty to bring the UK out of the EU. Uh, 23%, and then the hard remainers, 22%, voted to remain and think the referendum results should be overturned. Yeah, so that's a bit different, isn't it? That doesn't quite give you any indication as to how a second referendum might go, because it's not explicit, you know, if you've got the option to leave or stay, which would you pick? No, absolutely. Or I think we've got to be, yeah, it's, it's really important this in public polling, actually, is this understanding that when you give people you know, binary choices or tertiary choices or two rounds of choices, yeah, yeah. actually the outcomes for those things are not the same. 
people no. behave differently. Because yeah. I, I think I think it was already today. Nigel Farage has been in the EU Council already talking about the the, the results of this poll, saying like the seventy percent of people want to still want to leave, and that Juncker's just trying to slow the whole thing down or whatever. And I'm not I'm not sure it's quite that simple. I, I think it, it obviously we, we don't know the details of this this second referendum that's being planned. But if if the option were there to stay in or to leave on some terms, I'm not sure. A poll like that could give us much indication. No, exactly. And that concept of relievers, you know, voted to remain but think the government has a duty. So it's not necessarily that it's actually kind of what they want. Yeah. But they but actually they, yeah. the, there's kind of an acceptance of democracy or an acceptance that just, you know, the political cards are where they are. And of yeah. course, politically, sorry Jonathan, politically, um, this is really what's helping the Conservatives, you know, because we, you know, the 45% of hard leavers are almost all voting Conservative now. You know, they've swallowed up most of the UKIP vote. Um, but of those, that 23%, the, these reliever ones, um, over a third of those are now swinging, uh, swinging to Conservative. So there's a, you know, it's, it, it's certainly bolstering you know, the, the, the Conservatives' polling numbers. Just a broader point on polls. Do either of you have an opinion on polls? Because, of course, they were famously wrong for the US election, they're famously wrong for the last UK general election. Do you, do you guys read much into them here in the Chamber of Commerce? Um, I, I don't. I don't think we particularly do a lot of work around them, but it's definitely been interesting over the past few years to see how I guess some of the long-standing criticisms of polls have, have actually kind of played out into reality. Mm. So I mean, particularly the the Trump one was interesting because I, I can't remember the exact analogy that was made between Brexit and Trump and how the polls got them wrong, but in slightly different ways. Mm. Um, I think it was something like the polls uh, before. Brexit basically misrepresented how people would vote, whereby in America, the people who ended up voting for Trump weren't the people that would normally go out and vote anyway. No, exactly. So the the polls kind of missed a whole section of society that then actually went out and vote, so like the non-typical voters. No, exactly. And I mean, that's it. I mean, opinion polling is is in many ways a non-exact science, and yet in some ways... An unbelievable science. Yeah, you know, I mean, the you know the big names. You know, we've talked today about YouGov, but you know, Comrades and and, and you know other pollsters are available. Um, they spend a lot of time and a lot of money working on their methodologies and how they improve them and how they get through. Because frankly, they're paid on their reliability. You know, if you're not reliable, you're not going to get commissions for stuff. So, as you said the, the more the more famous one recently, of course, was the 2015 general election, where all the polling suggested it was going to be a hung parliament, mm. and, uh, and then the exit polling. Uh, do you think it was Ipsos Mori uh, when that was published after? After the after the, uh, the polling stations closed, suggested that the Tories that Tories would get through, and of course the whole industry, I think, with great credit to itself, um, kind of commissioned itself to do a colossal piece of research after that as to as to what went wrong. Um, and actually, it turned out that it you know, mostly, I think, as, as Alex has said, it's it's mostly about there were people who turned out who don't normally turn out, because, um, and the, you know the the methodologies are you know w- what you don't do is go out, ask a load of people, and publish that data. There's a huge amount of statistics that goes in. Statistics methodologies about how you turn that into what you think is public. Um, you're looking at how did people previously vote? What, what, you, what did, you ask them what they voted last time. We know actually people are shockingly poor at telling you correctly how they voted the last time they mm-hmm. voted. Is that right? Uh, so you have to wait for that. You have to wait for turnout. So we know broadly people who are more likely to vote for parties on the right are more likely to turn out and actually vote than people who vote for parties of the left. We know the older you are, you're more likely to turn out. The younger, the less you are. So all of that needs playing in. So even if you've got a perfectly balanced sample of people um, and it says the vote's going to go to the right 60-40... 
what you actually need to do is then say, well, yes, but for those people who are all under 35, we actually think only half of them will actually bother to vote, so we'll actually weight the left down further. Mm-hmm. And all of that sort of stuff goes on. Um, as Brexit particularly is a great example, as was the American election with Trump, of a huge section of the population who have never voted before mm-hmm. suddenly voting. So all of that thing I just talked about. So yeah. the section of society which would be normally methodologi- methodologically be downplayed in the sample size because we know they don't go and vote, they actually did. Um, and so there's you know, more work been done on that. But I think just to finish uh, as a last point on polling, I think the, the challenge becomes is we notice what... Well, actually two, two sub-points in this one point. One is margin of error which is something that never gets talked about. Yeah. Um, so on a normal poll, about 1,000 people, sampled, balanced, and weighted, you've got a margin of error of about three percentage points either way. Okay. So when we say Tories 50%, Labour 30 what we mean is Labour is somewhere between 27 and 33 Tories is somewhere between 47 and 53 When the polls are that far apart, that margin of error is irrelevant. Mm. When, as we went into the 2015 general election, and you're within the margin of error then actually you could have a position where the polls say Labour's one ahead, but actually the margin of error means the Tories could be two points. Which I believe, I believe that was the case with the Brexit polling. Absolutely. So the Brexit poll, because it was much harder to do, binary questions are much harder, because actually most, political, most opinion polling isn't asked on binary questions. The margin of error was much wider. It was actually up to about 10% of points really? either way. So the point is for that, and for the Trump, and for the 2015, they were all within their margin of error. All that happened is the outcomes were so close, the margins of error each way overlapped. Um, and so it's when it's close and you get it wrong, you don't notice. The big example usually is 1997, um, you know, when Labour came in with its barnstorming landslide. The opinion polls were miles out in 1997. They were really, really wrong. But because they call it in the right direction, they uh, call the Labour win. Yeah. You didn't notice, but actually the vote shares were four or five percentage points out. What was the... Um this is going back back history. What was the Labour landslide victory? Do you know how, how many how many seat how many seat majority they had? Uh, it was well into one hundred. They took over hundred seats, over four hundred seats. So I believe I, I read an opinion poll today which predicts the Tories have a hundred and sixty seat majority. Yeah, there's, I think that's some kind of the most optimistic. the The big challenge, of course, is as a first because we're a first past the post system. Um, is you've got all sorts of peculiar geographical things will play out across the country. Um, so uh, yeah, I think hot, hot money is probably one on the not majority that large, but over a hundred is uh, is certainly possible. Absolutely, absolutely fascinating stuff. Well, we're going to have this um, this election. We might have a, have a, have a, to- a Tory government, but what we also will have are EU negotiations starting up immediately. Uh, Michel Barnier has uh, uh, gone to the press. What has he said? Exactly. Um, so this was, I think this was just today actually, there's been some speeches made in the European Council and uh, Barnier and Tusk uh, again are, are, have been kind of playing their mediator roles um, and trying to keep things calm and productive. So Barnier has essentially said that things are going a bit too slowly and we need to start talking about this seriously and he suggested that the day after the election, June 9th, should be when the talks actually start um, and then Tusk kind of echoed his whole, you know, we're messing around a little bit too much here. They both, they both understand that we need to get the election out of the way, but the message was definitely like, let's get on with it. Um, and that, that tends to be the kind of roles which those two have played, um, you know, uh, I guess in a mirror of, of perhaps Juncker and, yeah. and, and, other, and other figures. 
Yeah, because there are some quite big personalities here. I, I know we are neutral on this podcast, but I can't help but slightly warm towards Juncker for, for, for whatever reason. Um, can, <laughs> he's can, a Marmite president, isn't he? You say, know? Say he's a Marmite president. He Juncker. is. I mean, you, know, you either absolutely love him and think there's, you know, despite being, you know, some people will say he's, you know, he's as mad as a box of frogs. Uh, some people will say, you know, he's holding the line and that's what his, that's what his job is. But he's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. he's, de- he's definitely a character. That's a good way of putting it. Um, could you tell me a little bit about Juncker? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, th- I think really in, in the, the negotiation side of things, there's, there's four big hitters. There's uh, Donald Tusk, there's Jean-Claude Juncker, there's Michel Barnier, who I mentioned earlier, and there's also Guy Verhofstadt, who tends to be getting in the media increasingly. And he, he, enjoy, he quite enjoys his Twitter too, doesn't he? Yes, yes, he does, yeah. Um, and I, I think these are kind of seen as the big four. Um, but it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that, really. Okay. I mean, if, if we start with Juncker, for example, um, he is kind of the anti-Brexiteer-in-chief on the other side, I think you could perhaps call him. Um, That's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, he, he gets a lot of headlines. He says a lot of contentious things which annoy a lot of people. Um, it was obviously him who had the ill-fated dinner with Theresa May a couple of weeks ago, uh, all the details of which were leaked apparently by him and his people, and he came out it saying he was ten times more sceptical than he was going in. Um, so generally just quite uh he he kind of just ridicules the whole brexit process as much as he can um yeah so Juncker himself he he i i think he slides into the mold of the kind of eu elite much more easily than than the rest of them um i think for people who are so inclined particularly because he was Prime Minister of Luxembourg uh, <laughs> before getting involved with the EU. So, you know, a, a massively rich and small country of about 600,000 people, I think. Um, and so, yeah, he kind of fits the mould of, of the elite quite easily and has become quite a target for people. Um, but in terms of the actual negotiations, um, he's actually not that important. Um, Just explain that. Why, why is he not that important? Because, you know, he's president of the Euro- European Union. You, you'd have thought that would be very important. Yeah, he's um, he's president of the European Commission. So European Commission, yes. Yes, yeah, but um, he doesn't actually have any kind of direct uh, role in in terms of the negotiations. It's actually Michel Barnier who's who's basically been appointed to handle Brexit for on, on the side of the Commission anyway. But does he not get his orders directly from from Juncker? Um, well, it's 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 Juncker in 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 the midst of the Commission as a whole. Um, so I, I think really the reason why Juncker's been in the headlines so much is because he's been kind kind of used as a, a thermometer for what the mood of the Commission is. Yeah. Um, we should clarify just for clear if anyone's not got it. So the European Commission is basically the the EU civil service. Right. So yeah. That's, yeah. Just so yeah. So haven't quite got that. As I understand it, and just just correct me, but it is the European hang on, the European Council uh-huh. then. Who, who, are, um, who then instruct the European Commission on what to do. The European Commission then carry it out via Michel Barnier. Is that roughly correct? I think broadly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, as I said, so Juncker doesn't have any direct involvement in the negotiations, but whatever he says is being taken as, to be, is, as the kind of view of the Commission as a whole. Um, which I, I don't think it's quite that simple because I think we've already mentioned before that Juncker's a bit of a character. He's been accused of being a, a bit of a clown kind of figure. I think some people definitely have accused him of being maybe an alcoholic. I, I yes, won't, I have heard that. I won't talk about those um, accusations. 
Um, but yeah, he's, he's a definitely a character and a, a tricky customer. Um, and, you, you know, he's, he's, he said a whole bunch of things like, um, you know, English is losing its importance in, within the EU. That was him. Um, so, yeah, he's a, he's a tricky adversary. And I, th- I think that's the, the real reason why he's been making headlines so much, more so um, than his kind of importance within the negotiations. Um, because, as I mentioned before, it's, it's Michel Barnier who's the chief Brexit negotiator. Um, so it's him who is essentially in charge of the day-to-day negotiations. He'll be there every day. He'll be there setting the tone and actually doing the back and forth um, with, with us. It won't be Tusk. So what, uh, it won't be Juncker, sorry. Yeah, so what we're looking at with Michel Barnier is the, the opposite numbers of David Davis, effectively. Yes, yes, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, it's, uh, I think, I think of, of, the, of the four which I mentioned, I, I break it down in, in the middle. I'd, I'd put uh, Juncker and Verhofstadt on, on one side um, because they're the two which are kind of making headlines a lot, um, saying a lot of, you know, uh, I, I guess, saying a lot of things which are frustrating people um, and, and tend to being seen to frustrate the whole process, I guess. Um, but they actually both don't have any kind of formal roles in negotiations themselves, so probably yeah. aren't as important as the two that I would put on the other side. Um, so Verhofstadt, for, for example, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. Mm. Is that it's how you'd go for it? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's, he's um, chief Brexit negotiator for the European Parliament. Um, so, I mean, he's probably more important than Juncker in terms of the actual, the actual negotiations, but he's definitely not up there with Tusk and Barnier. Um, because the 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 definition of his, of his leader of the European Parliament is, is kind of exaggerated because the Parliament itself is not actually directly involved with the negotiations. No, that's right. It, it, set, it set out what it wants out of them. So yeah. the, the EU has, has produced two big documents that, that kind of set out its position. The European Parliament has said, these are the things we want out of this. Yeah. Uh, the European Council uh, agreed unanimously in four minutes, apparently, which strikes me as being either unbelievably unanimous or not terribly <laughs> unanimous, but everyone nodded because it would have been cause too many problems Mm -hmm. if anybody said anything Um, those two bodies have set out what they want that now goes to uh, to the negotiators who are now only allowed to negotiate within those parameters essentially what they've been set by those two so what is the actual point of the job title chief chief Brexit negotiator for the European Parliament. It doesn't it's, seem. It's to... misleading and it's kind of exaggerated in its importance as well. It, 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 I think it's, it's similar to role, role to Juncker. So he's basically there to represent the views of the of the Parliament. Yeah. But once the Parliament's views have been laid out, they can no longer kind of have a day to day interference with the negotiations yeah. themselves. That's it. Um, so he, he's, he's like the, the European Parliament's representative to the yeah. to the negotiations. So he knew. Don't bother. Don't try and talk to all seven hundred and however many MEPs you can you can talk to them after. Mm-hmm. Now, Donald Tusk is quite an interesting guy because every time I hear him speak, he sounds very reasonable, actually. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, as I said before, I'd break it down to two sides. Yeah. So you've got on the two sides the ones which are making the headlines but aren't that important. And then on the other side, you've got uh, Barnier and Tusk, who, yeah. are, who are definitely the important ones. Um, Tusk, in particular, is probably the most important as pres- president of the European Council. Just before we go on to Tusk, then, can I just ask this? Complete speculation, of course, but... What do you think um, Verhofstadt, if I say his mm-hmm. name, and Juncker get out of saying relatively inflammatory things? Because they're, all, they're, I mean, they're far too, in, too intelligent, they're far too successful just to be saying this without calculating it first. So what do you think the game plan is in saying things like, we won't be using English in the EU, or what, whatever the latest thing is? It's hard to say. I mean, I know you mentioned before that David Davis has, has kind of said that maybe Juncker's trying to get him fired. 
yes um, and making his job much more difficult than it needs to be um, I don't know if they've got any kind of behind the scenes kind of interest in, in making this whole thing difficult for themselves I think Juncker is, is just a bit of a um, you know a bit of a playful character as I, as I mentioned before some people call him a clown um, and, and Verhofstadt I mean he's, he's obviously a, a Europhile and loves the European project and he's very kind of anti-Brexit but even he, he's even changed his tone a little bit um, recently there was an article in the FT uh, written by him just a couple of weeks ago where you know he was saying he, he's, he's very hopeful that we can deliver a deal which works for all and um, despite you know what Juncker's been saying he believes that a deal is much more likely than the no deal and I think that was an interesting um, bit in that article where he specifically pushes back against the leaking yeah uh, the leaking that had happened from the uh, from the Juncker dinner you know the yeah thing, you know, we can't we can't behave yeah so I mean go, so. after that happened Verhofstadt kind of changed changed his tone as well publicly um, and I think I think Merkel got involved and, and had a bit of a word with Juncker as well yeah that's it I mean part of me part of me sort of doesn't worry too much about the noisiness of Juncker in the same way that you know I don't particularly worry too much about the noisiness of Theresa May when she's you know her you know, we talked about this in the last podcast. Yeah, the streets, mm-hmm. of, you know, Downing Street, saying you know we're it's all etc. etc. You know, we've, we've covered all that. Um, you know, it's there's still there's some really important policy challenges that are going to come through, and it's going to be um, it's going to be people like uh, you know the negotiators on either side. It's going to be our civil service particularly. It's going to be the Task Force Fifty with Barnier on the other side. They're going to get into the real challenges and sorting that out. In the meantime, politics goes on as normal, mm. um, and you know, it's you know, I suppose Juncker's got that role to play in playing the message for those people who think you know it's got to be a punishing job. It's you know, it's, yeah. it's important. there's a political role and. Kind of be, I think we need to be mature enough to accept that politicians need to be politicians. Yeah. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, I'm relatively confident that actually with, with Barnier and, you know, some from Tusk, actually there are other people in the right place taking the right attitude for the actual stuff and we're just going to have to let yeah, politicians play their game. It's, it's kind of like the EU's playing good cop, bad cop. Yeah, yeah, it's, great it's, it. yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like good cops, Tusk and Barnier and bad cops the other two, almost, yeah. Well, I've not really heard much of Barnier, but why don't you tell us a bit about Tusk then? Um, Tusk is uh, president of the European Council, um, and I, I think he's, he's seen as the most important guy um, going into negotiations. I, I don't know particularly how I would describe him. Um, it, I, I kind of see him almost as a whip um, of sorts, and that he's kind of in charge of uh, mustering the consensus out of the council. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't particularly know how he does that day to day, but he, he's certainly in charge of, of making sure that everyone's on the same page and bringing the views together and setting out the broad negotiating objectives, um, which then Barnier takes into the meetings um, you know, day after day. Um, so it, it's certainly uh, Tusk and Barnier who are kind of heading this thing. No, and I think, t- sorry, I oh. think Tusk's role is, impo- is really important because he's... I said you've got two big, two big organisations on the EU side here: the Parliament and the and the Council. The Parliament, by its nature, is highly political. You've got you know however many different political parties are represented across mm. across the entire of the EU. They will pull in all sorts of different directions depending on their groupings, depending on national interest, and you know things going on within the countries. Um, as as president of the Council. Um, Tusk, of course, his job is essentially working with the 28 heads of state, mm-hmm. who, of course, in their roles of heads, not heads of state, I mean, or their delegates, it's not the Queen that goes along to this stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, in that sense, those people are less party political. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so he, he, he's the, I think Alex Beauty was that kind of unifying role. Yeah. You know, he's, you know, the single biggest challenge that the president of the council has is to get 28 governments, 28 national governments to the same position. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, you know, the the statesmanship required just to manage the day-to-day process. Never mind, you know, sort of the colossal issues like uh, like Brexit. Is, um, what it's is kind it, of phenomenal. What's the background? Am I right? Thinking he used to be prime minister of Poland. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Pol- Polish um, politician of uh, of long serving uh, time. I think longest serving of the of the latest republic in Poland. If I remember rightly, um, you know, a big reformer too. So lots of um, free market policies. Lots of you know. Um, uh, simplification of bureaucracy, stable governance. You know, he's, he was seen very much as a, a very positive, uh, positive role in what he, he what he managed to do for Poland as it came through, came through its kind of post-communist mm. era, um, and really has kind of taken you know similar, similar kind of stuff at the European level. It's, mm-hmm. it's certainly a unifier, a European unifier, undoubtedly. Um, uh, you know, he was one who you know worked very very closely on the Lisbon Treaty as uh, as that came through. So. Okay, the last guy in this, and probably the guy that, um, how, how, how would I put this? The guy who I think that, the guy that I think will cause the UK the most issues, because he just seems like a very canny operator, Michel, Bar- um, Michel Barnier. Just tell me about him. Um, so he was a he's French he's a former French foreign minister um, he's chief he's titled as chief Brexit negotiator for the Euro- European Commission um, and so I, I think he's he's seen as perhaps Tusk's second second in command almost mm. um, so Tusk is the unifier and the mediator and he's there to um, bring everyone's views together and, and make sure that the, the position is is, is kind of unanimous uh, amongst the, the council and, and then it's Barnier's job to actually go into the, the meetings every day and carry out the, nego- carry out the negotiations based on, on the positions that Tusk has put forward. Um, he's, he's actually been pretty quiet um, recently. I mean, he's, I, know, I know he's been saying some stuff today in the council, but he's, he's kind of dropped off the radar for a couple of months. It's, mm. it's, it's mostly been the other three, um, particularly on that side. It's been Tusk doing the kind of more productive talking. Well, I mean, I guess if you think about the roles that he has and the roles that David Davis have, the biggest job is actually assemb- assembling staff right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the EU is building what they what they keep referring to as TF fifty, Task Force fifty for you know, fifty for Article fifty, um, oh. and exactly that. But yes, building up. I mean, the Department for International Trade here in the UK is boasting that it's just gone through. I can't remember what big round number it is in staff. It might be three thousand. Uh, I think so. Yeah, staffing up and and getting ready um, is you know as much a challenge as anything else. So that's going to be much less of an issue for the EU than it is for us because of course the EU has been managing um, but the European Commission particularly has been managing treaty writing and international trade deals for a very long time yeah. um, lots of them concurrently uh, so it's us that's got you know, both sides need to kind of staff up um, but the EU doesn't particularly need to skill up Yes. Yes. Everything, all the knowledge it needs to be able to do this, it already has. I think that's kind of potential. You know, when people talk about the UK being a bit on the back foot in all of this, that's just kind of natural from the from where the two parties are starting from. Yeah, I, th- I think it's quite it's telling of Barnier and his, his role really that he's he's been quiet uh, in particular because he, he is kind of going to be that neutral negotiator. Um, I mean, he, he keep he keeps on saying things. So t- Tusk tends to come in after something's happened. So like the inflammatory stuff around the dinner. Um, Tusk comes out afterwards and says, you know, let's not row because this is going to get impossible. Yeah. Or as uh, Barnier is very much focused on the task at hand and the negotiations, you know, he says things like, 
Um, we need solutions. We need legal process. This will take time. I think in the in the council today, he said he, he was giving us reassurances that the. Uh, the, the sequencing of the talks wasn't being set up in any way to punish the UK or to make it difficult for us. And it was just it was just being set up in that way because, you know, according to various treaties, various things need to be sorted out earlier on. And it was all, he's very much about process and making sure that everything ha- happens correctly. Yeah. How important is it that Barnier and David Davis actually get on quite well? And, and do you think that's the sort of relationship that they're going to have? Do you think there is going to be a lot of discussion be, um, between the two and a lot of trust, or is it going to be quite ad- adversarial? I can't really work it out. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, no, I've no idea. They're going to be um, spend, spending a, a great, great deal of time together. I would, I would have thought. I um, thought so. Although, having said that, you know, the negotiating rules are out, are out and clear now. So, mm. you know, I mean, the one thing the EU has, has maintained since, you know, since um, the referendum here in the UK was called is, is EU business goes on as normal. You know, I, mean, I think that's why they fired up you know, TF50, Task Force 50. It's specifically that, from the EU's point of view, this is as much a work stream yes. as is anything else. This is, you know, from the, they are absolutely clear this will not become all-encompassing. Um, they will set up the staff. Um, and of course, we're trying to do the same thing, particularly with, um, with DEXU, we call it, the Department for Exiting the European Union. Um, you know that's going to be be the lead. And I'm just, just thinking, actually, when we're talking about this, we're talking about Barnier, and we're talking about all these names in the EU. Um, now, Barnier, of course, I think he'll be mostly under the radar because he's mm-hmm. civil service. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he doesn't hold one of the presidential roles. He is civil service. Um, but we know him. We know the name. We know quite a lot about him. Um, anyone here know who the lead civil servant for the UK side is? Funny should say that actually, because I was just thinking when you described. Juncker as the head of the civil service. I, I just thought Gus O'Donnell never said an, um, um, anything like this. You know, civil servants are usually quite bland. Yeah, and I mean, I think I mean, you know, part of that is because of the way our civil service works. Mm. You know, it's a, we don't have things like presidents of the civil service and all that kind of stuff. You know, the civil service is, is inherently a bit more detached from the political side here in the UK than others. But I just think it's interesting that, that nobody talks about it. I'm just sort of look at, looking stuff up here. Um, Oliver Robbins is the is the permanent secretary now, is that, for DEXU. Is, that, is, um, that, is Oliver Robbins the role the dashing man with the beard? Uh, he's, well, he's not got a beard on the photograph I'm looking at. Who is at. the guy who handed um, the no. Oscar 50, 50 letter? Ah, no, that's our representative. So that's our diplomats to the EU. Yeah. Um, whose name has now escaped me as I need it. You, you, um, you simply could not look any more grand that... Mm. Than that guy. No, yeah. so, so, so that's part of the UK diplomatic service, essentially. So that's, uh, our, that's our, our, our diplomat over there. But yeah, so Oliver Robbins is the permanent secretary uh, for DEXU. Uh, so he is the, he essentially, I guess, is kind of the equivalent, the closest equivalent to Barnier. Um, but it's not really clear yet exactly what will happen on the, on the UK side. You know, lots of people are still talking about Theresa May, Liam Fox, David Davis leading, but it's hard to imagine the politicians are going to be they're not going to be dotting the I's and crossing the T's on what the clauses are. Mm. Um, you're going to have to hand that down to the civil service. And it's so, certainly not really clear who is in charge. So that. just on that, and you've just mentioned, uh, does anyone, has anyone seen anything about where, what Liam Fox or, is doing, or, or, or Boris, really, in the past, in the past I thought they were just hunkering down, hoping that they'll keep their jobs after the election. That was my... I mean, that, that is my... General yeah, feeling. Yeah. They don't want to say anything, do they? It, it, it is odd. I mean, f- from, from DIT's point, Department of International Trade's point of view, sorry, uh, Liam Fox, the huge challenge, of course, is I guess the way, and um, you know, we, we know quite a few of the DIT team here, um, the DIT is kind of working in two, 
two streams at the moment. There's its ongoing sort of trade facilitation work, so you know, helping to helping companies to export, making those relationships, uh, helping to connect people to UK embassies abroad. All of that sort of just kind of carries on, and that's what used to be called UKTI. People have heard of yeah. UKTI. All of that carries on. The other bit, of course, kind of the new bit of DIT, which is actually trade deals, has nothing to do. Mm. Yeah. Yet, yeah. because we can't do anything. So you know, people say, you know, is he out there talking about trade deals? Well, no, because actually, under the European treaties, he's not allowed. To. Again, I, I, um, I assume it's just building up capability for for when he can. Is I think he, that's it. Really. Is he just is he just flying around the world, whining and dining? I mean, that, it kind of strikes. Job to have, strikes it? if he's got away with it. I, I, um, yeah. so, but it is not really clear what that's for. I mean, you know, Dexu is the one that's going to be you know at the heart of the. Of the fourth, it's going to be the first phase of the negotiations is going to be being run from Dexu and David Davis. I imagine the Liam Fox role is going to be very much like the foreign secretary role, which is you don't really get much criticism and you get to you know fly to various different countries and have dinner. Yeah, I think Boris might say he gets plenty of criticism as foreign secretary. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe some of that is even brought on himself. Um, um, but I think there's there's sort of an aspect of that, and I think you know, it's you know, it's the early days. Um, it's early days, you know. We're still skidding up, but I don't know. It still, it still feels to me like the UK is a bit on the back foot in all of this, and just really forming its, mm-hmm. just forming realistically what it wants out of all this. Yeah, well, it's certainly going to be a very big ask for whoever, whichever party it is mm-hmm. to get into government, and then next day go into go uh, get around the negotiating table. So we'll have yeah, to I mean, I mean, that, I mean, you know, we're all all the betting markets are assuming it's going to be you know a good safe safe Tory majority. But let's you know assume everybody's completely wrong and Labour get in. Um, there will be that big issue. You know, we've had the civil service has been working flat out, um, desperately trying to get itself ready for Theresa May's plans on the back of what was announced in in January. If if potentially the civil service needs to half start again. Um, to new political realities, um, then you know that's. I can't imagine the EU being terribly happy in many no. ways. No, because no. they're ready to go. They want to crack on. Uh, right. Well, there we go. I think we'll leave. Uh, we will leave it there. Um, please remember to put some reviews on iTunes. It really is appreciated. And also, just go and follow us on Twitter. Next week, we'll be back. Um, we will have all three party manifestos by next week. We um, will. Yeah. Well, looking forward to dissecting those. Yeah. So, um, any questions, or if you want to get in on on, um, on the discussion, find us on Twitter. I'm at J Beardmore Christian. I'm at GMCC underscore Christian. I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. Uh, until next week, goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.